The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. So, heresy then. What is it? For practice. Very importantly, do you even believe all practice (coughs) and all practice? Because... One of the things that, of course, most shocks us now when we look back on the way heretics are treated is the brutality of the manner in which they were suppressed and dealt with. Um, when the, the Pope uh, unleashed the Crusaders on the Cathars, he issued indulgences to the Crusader leaders who were extremely violent men, men who spent all their life in military service doing terrible things. He gave them indulgences that not only forgave all of their past sins, but also forgave all of their future sins as well. And then he just sent them into the south of France, actually rape, pillage and murder their way through Cathar settlements. Why did the Pope do that? He did that because heresy for him was not simply an issue of defective belief, also an issue of moral practice as well. Heresy is a moral category. It is not an intellectual category. There is no separation in the medieval mind between the moral quality of the person and the ideas that that person holds. Um, I used to say that, and and some of you have heard me say, that was one of the big differences between sort of modern world in which we live now and the sort of pre-modern world that we're talking about here, that heresy was a moral issue. I actually don't think that I was correct in saying that. I think heresy is still a moral issue today, merely that our heresies have changed. If you look at the way language is used about those who now dissent from what we are told is the official social position on something like homosexuality, the language used to talk about those who happen to dissent from this position is the language of moral outrage. Sorry? What about... Uh, I'm just, I'm just saying, no, I'm saying that what I'm talking about society in general. Society in general simply changed what heresies it particularly picks on and regards as morally outrage. I'm not saying that, that we, I don't regard Jehovah's Witnesses as heretic. What I'm doing is I'm making a point about the tolerant society in which we, we take this rather um, superior attitude to early modern, pre-modern attitudes to heresy. And we say, you know, why do they demonize these people using moral categories? What I'm saying is, well, modern liberal society does precisely the same. It's changed its heresies, but it still uses the language of moral discourse when it talks. It's just a, it's a, it's a throwaway, throwaway point, if you like, Virginia. But if you want to think of, I don't know, let's take a, less, a slightly more distant and less loaded example. Uh, if you want to think of communism in the 1950s, now one could look and say, well, Marxism, communism, it's an intellectual commitment. But clearly in the 1940s and 50s establishment, it was also regarded as profoundly moral to have you excluded as well. And that's how uh, the medievals thought of heresy. You still get it today. I had a, a couple of years ago, I had um, the interesting experience of teaching um, Christian theology to a, a, a Muslim um, chap who'd come to the university where I was out to study uh, Christian th- And I sent him away to read Paul Tillich. And he read, the um, first thing he did was he got hold of Paul Tillich's biography as written by his wife and private life. But it was pretty unbelievable uh, when Paul Tillich would arrive in a city to lecture 
the first thing he would do is track down where the red light district and the strip bars were. Then he would find out where he was meant to. And, um, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I mean I, I, that wasn't a joke, really. He seriously was a particularly reprehensible person. This Islamic chap came back to me and said, I've read about Tillich's life. Why on earth should I take his thing? For him, there was no separation between the moral quality of the person and the thought of that person. The fact that Tillich was uh, horrendously immoral. Immediately, we have the capacity now, for good or for evil, the moral quality of the writer. From an Islamic society where that distinction is concerned, you only have to look at Tillich's life to understand. So it touches on the kind of way that heresy is thought about in the Middle Ages. It's deviant belief and or practice. The most dangerous heretics uh, in the Middle Ages are indeed those who uh, are appear to be orthodox in lifestyle. They're the problematic ones. It is generally assumed that heretics demonstrate their heresy at a practical level. Those who have a strict and upright lifestyle, they're often the problematic ones because it's more difficult to pin the charge of heresy against them. Secondly, <clears throat> simple points defined by the church. Church in the Middle Ages, the institutional church, determines uh, what is and is not the acceptable boundaries of interpretation of Holy Scripture and church tradition. So the church as an institution, as an organism, is determining what is and is not heresy. It's a simple point, but it's one worth making. Um, it's important for us to remember that medieval Catholicism, say Catholicism today, are not as monolithic as we often tend to think they are. A famous saying of G.K. Chesterton that I think is something the effect of the Church of Rome always looks broader from the inside than it does from the outside, bigger from the inside. Rome, and this is true of modern day Church of Rome as much as it is of men, embraces a broader spectrum of opinion than Protestants often give it credit. So, anybody who deviates slightly from that getting into trouble, the Church actually has covers a considerable spectrum of opinion, but on certain issues, too far, then they become heretical. Thirdly, it can be focused on individuals and movements. It's a very simple point, but there's always a distinction between heresy pursued, if you like, in the halls of a university, and heresy as it pans out at a popular level. We see this quite obviously when we've come to look at witness class. John Wycliffe is a heretic. The movement he inspires, the heretical movement he inspires, is much less sophisticated than he is. He inspires a popular movement of dissent. So there is a distinct difference. So heresy can take place in like two different levels. The intellectual, rarefied level, and there's the level of popular dissent. And it's always difficult when you start dealing with popular heretical movement to work out exactly how self-aware and reflective those movements are. Is it just people who don't like the Pope? Really thought out a thoroughgoing theological position and stand. It's very difficult to tell. Look at the trial records of heretics in England in the century. Um, there's plenty of people <coughs> going around shouting that the Pope is Antichrist and the masses and I. Does that make them followers of John Wycliffe or does it simply make them difficult to tell all the time? So often when we move down from the leaders of the heresiarchs, the leaders of heresies, to the popular level, it's very difficult to trace. Uh, if you like, the path of ideas and the influence of individuals as anything other than symbols of dissent at that point. And my last point that I've got here that I've already covered uh, should not distract us from the breadth of Catholicism. 
The church was not as monolithic. It couldn't be. I mean, it covered a huge area for a start. Very difficult to police a huge area if you are operating the very, very narrow canons of what is and is not acceptable. It was also made up of a series of powerful factions. In the, the later Middle Ages that we're now dealing with, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, powerful factions within the church who had to be appeased and played off against each other. The very nature of the church meant that uh, although in theory the Pope is the head man, and he is the person who dictates the way things go. At the end of the day, and it's all about power broking. And that leads to a breadth and an elasticity. But often, you know, with the sort of images we get of the Inquisition and the conspiracy theories we have about some of the basic Catholicism in the Middle Ages and beyond. So then, what is heresy then? It's deviant belief or practice. It's defined by the church. It can be focused on individuals and movements, and it shouldn't undermine... Uh, uh, understanding of the breadth of Catholicism. Why is it important? It's necessary for orthodoxy. At a purely theoretical level, heresy defines where orthodoxy ends. Um, if you think that the standard of a degree at a degree-granting institution is not determined ultimately by the best candidate who passes, is determined, I think, by the best candidate who fails. Orthodoxy and heresy live side by side, if you like, because they're interacting. The boundaries are defined. That we know what orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is not. If you look back to the early church. This is the pattern of the early church creed. The creeds tell us as much about the boundaries of what is acceptable as do about positive formulation of the Chalcedonian definition. It's basically telling you what you can't say about Christ and still. So heresy at a theoretical level is necessary for orthodoxy. It is not enough to succeed, others must fail. I think it was Gore Vidal said that, wasn't it? It's uh, an American saying anyway. When you say it's necessary, absolute necessity. No, I'm a historian. I'm talking okay. about it in a historical sense. Um, I suppose it, it is hypothetically possible to imagine a possible world where everybody's orthodox, set of boundaries there. But I'm you know, dealing with, <coughs> with the real world, not the hypothetical. I think oh, I'm talking about, if you like, the church. Heresy becomes necessary as soon as you have, as soon as you have a struggle over who owns the interpretation of one side to be declared orthodox. That's not trying to relativise the truth value of these things. It's merely trying to think the right side won. <coughs> We've also mentioned it's a moral issue. Shall touch on that again. There are times when it becomes a geographical issue as well. I have a paper in my head that I've never written down called Proximity and Heresy. It often depends on geographical proximity as to who the heretics are. Uh, you see this a bit with um, eschatological interpretations. Who is the Antichrist? Well, generally speaking, it's the Pope, unless the Turks are banging at the city gate. There's a geographical dimension to theology as well that we often don't take into it. And it's very interesting. You can even trace this sometimes in individual writers that their understanding of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy ebbs and flows depending on who the immediate... We saw that a little bit, I think, when we touched on uh, the filioque clause and um, the anecdotes of the, the monks in on exactly what the political situation at the time was, depending on how far they were going to push the video in time. And fourthly, and I touch on this because at the end of the day we're, we're coming to church history from, certainly the seminary broadly, 
Protestant and Reformed position. And it's worth mentioning that there is a strong tradition in Protestantism of using heresy, medieval heresy, as a way of tracing the faithful. If you're a Protestant, you've got a real problem. What happens to the church between, say, the, well, the conversion of Constantine, but let's say for the sake of argument, what happens to the church between the 6th century? Well, there are various ways of, of answering that question. My particular approach would be to look at the Trinitarian anti-Pelagian trajectories, which would say, well, um, much of the bones of the basic gospel remain intact even within the church. During. But a more popular uh, way of pushing it from a Protestant perspective has been to argue that the heretics, apostolic succession, you get this in John Fox. If you look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was a huge multi-volume work put together at the Reformation to point towards the Reformation, and particularly the English Reformation, as the culmination of God's work in history. And how does Fox trace the church back? <coughs> he traces the church back through the Middle Ages by focusing upon heretical groups, the Waldensians, and saying that the true church has always been there. It was persecuted during the Middle Ages by the great Babylon of Rome. So heresy has fulfilled a very useful propaganda function for Protestants over the years in allowing them to claim continuistic era by pointing to the apostasy of the institutional church and the fidelity of those that the institutional look a bit like Ahab and Jezebel, the prophets of Jehovah. So heresy has also fulfilled a very useful propaganda in terms of Protestants understanding their own place in the present. We stand at the head of a church, if you like, that we can trace, move out of the mainstream institutional church. And it often involves, um, in Protestant historiography, a cleaning up of a great example of this, we'll talk about a bit later, someone like John Huss, who I would say is 98% Orthodox Catholic. He's actually burned at the stake for theological crimes. He doesn't commit. And they don't say what the Catholics... But Huss is recreated as a proto-Protestant in Protestant mythology. Well, he is a proto-Protestant to the extent that he criticizes the Pope. But to the extent that he holds to transubstantiation, justification by works, and all these various other things, un-Protestant and medieval Catholic. Do you buy this at all? Um, I buy, I, I certainly, when you look at sort of groups like the Waldensians in the Middle Ages, they would seem to me more pietist, basically orthodox Christian group. I... Do you buy the continuity as well? <coughs> I'm pretty confident, I'm pretty confident that I can trace Trinitarian orthodoxy and anti-Pelagian orthodoxy back from the Reformation through, and that's quite a lot. There's an awful lot of what I would consider to be wrong theology in the Middle Ages, but I would say that if you've got anti-Pelagianism and you've got Trinitarianism, you've got something that is core, basically Christian. It's difficult to use language without it sounding incredibly loaded, which was a, albeit perverted and twisted in some, through the institutional church. And that's not to commit me to regarding the papacy as a good idea, and it's not to commit me to justification or at all adequate there. It's to say that there is a, a sense. And the reformers are well aware of this as well. Um, from the 1530s onwards, the reformers have realised that their reaction against <coughs> the medieval church is not a... <coughs> you know, that, that impulse was very, very strong. Many popular movements backslid, if you will, all the way up until... From the time of Timothy? Yes. Oh, right. Wow. After that, it backslides again. Yeah. Until someone's a real strong sense that almost always wrong, except... Yeah. 
I wonder in that if there's a lot of an innate fear of lay fear of authority that lies behind there's a populist pragmatic can-do stream in Christianity that my own encounters with people from strong holiness movements is although they pay lip service to the Reformation in fact they recast the Reformation in their own image and the modern holiness <coughs> movements are more akin to but the, it is the, it's the perennial problem of Christianity and that if we have a God who works through history it is crucial that we establish our historical roots. So I just introduced the faithful church then as a way just to make you aware of how this um, the sort of narrative of heresy often functions within um, Protestant uh, writings. Uh, great examples, Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a 19th century book, if you stomach it, it's worth reading. Um, <laughs> Wiley's History of Protestantism. I would suggest that you do not lend it to a Roman Catholic friend. Deeply, um, deeply flawed and deeply bigoted view of church. But it's quite a laugh. Um, you can, you can download it from Jack Chick's webpage. Uh, so that kind of locates it in the sort of theological genre. But it's a 19th century, um, it was the Jesuits what done it kind of, uh, uh, is the conclusion, essentially. So if you want to see how that, this kind of history pans out in the you know, 19th century writing, um, why this history of Protestantism is. want to look, at, first of all, at a couple of... Um, uh, broader popular heretical movements and then come to focus uh, probably in the second half of the class on Wycliffe and Huss um, who are two sort of particular interests of mine in the Middle Ages. Um, first group to look at the Cathars, beloved of New Agey people, reincarnation-y people. I mean, some very strange things have happened associated with the Cathars in that the Cathars often come up in these sort of if you, if you read these New Age magazines or anything, you get accounts of people who have been reincarnated who know things that they couldn't possibly have known because only some document locked away in the basement of the Sorbonne in Paris has any reference to this. This kind of numerous Cathars appear to have been reincarnated according to the sort of New Age mythology we have today. Um, so they're a, they're a group that enjoy a certain trendiness among modern mystical movements. They're a group, they flourished really in the north of Italy, the south of France, though their origins appear to lie in the east, and there were groups of Cathari in the east. Uh, the word comes from the Greek meaning pure, the pure ones. The Cathari were the pure ones. In the 13th century, the word heretic, which we now apply as a generic term for the things I've described, in the first 20 The word heretic in the 13th century is applied almost exclusively to Cathars. They were the archetypal heresy. They were the preeminent enemy of the church. And as I said, when the Pope comes to suppress them, he issues indulgences to these very violent crusaders that forgive any sins they might care to commit in the future. And quite literally, we have accounts of rape and pillage as these crusaders butchered their way across Cathar territory. Um, favourite practice was raping women and then throwing weapons <coughs> to kill them. They were extremely violent, the Crusaders. But that was a function, on one level, this is not to excuse it, but to say it was a function of how much the church feared the Cathar movement. It grew rapidly in strength from 1130 to 1180. And it claimed, and sadly, this is always a sign of, almost always a sign in church history of a deviant movement. 
It claimed to be restoring the purity of the early church. Is there ever a heretic who hasn't claimed to be restoring the purity of the earth? The group itself appears to have been, um, have had a certain theological diversity, but marked essentially by a kind of dualism. A sort of twofold principle here. Some groups holding to two gods, some holding to God and to Satan as a sort of almost equally powerful force, uh, but Satan as a fallen angel. So the Cathars bear certain potent similarities with the Manichaeism and Gnosticism of the early church, essentially a Gnostic group. They attempted, like many Gnostics in the early church did, to resolve the problem of evil by regarding matter as the material nature of the world and of human desires that was the problem with sin. As with all heretics, the thing about heretics that I think we need to take seriously and um, appreciate is that they often ask extremely serious questions. Heresy is not asking the wrong questions, it's giving the wrong answer with the problem of evil. They came up with the wrong solution, but I think we can sympathize with them in their struggle over trying to make sense of the universe. Salvation, therefore, uh, is a sort of freeing of the soul from material needs. And this led to what we would regard now, I suppose, as strange uh, practices. Complete abandonment of marriage. Vegetarians. Any vegetarians here today? I have a number of politically incorrect jokes I make about vegetarians, but I won't listen. In case any of you are lying low, seem to trick me into something. <laughs> no, no marriage and they were vegetarians. Of course, if you don't marry, that is problematic for the sort of replication of your group. I think the, um, is it the Shakers Shaker. in North America? Down to about three people, something like that? <laughs> Sorry? They're all died off. They're all died off. There are no Shakers left. But they couldn't marry. Is that right? They lived communally but didn't marry. Um, the Cathars had a way around this. They developed a sort of two-tier structure of Catharism where you had the perfect, those who were heavily into the Cathar way of life. No marriage, no sexual relations, no meat, etc. But you also had the, the rank of believers. These were people who were basically in sympathy with the Cathars message but um, didn't want to go all the way just yet. And the idea was that the believers would become kind of wholly sanctified just before they died. So you had a two-tier structure in Cathars. Their theology, clearly not Christian. The dualism, what we say, the vegetarianism at this particular point in time, all of these things marked them out as being fundamentally not Christian. And they were combated brutally in the 13th century. The Fourth Lateran Council, most famous, this is 1215, most famous for the establishment of the doctrine of in, uh, dogma of transubstantiation as orthodox Catholic teaching. Fourth Lateran Council also set in place violent anti-Cathar policies. Other things in the 13th century also served as, if you like, weapons for the church to oppress the Cathars. The rise of the Dominicans in 1220, founded in 1220, the order to which Thomas Aquinas was to belong. 
the Dominicans were to become a powerful force for imposing, defining orthodoxy, combating heresy within the church. In addition to uh, the Dominicans, we have the establishment of the Inquisition. I think the Inquisition, I don't have the date written down here. I have a feeling it was 1233, but I'm not sure about that. Put that down with a question mark and go and check it. The Inquisition was established, uh, manned essentially at this point by Dominicans and Francis, rising, most powerful orders, most militant. The Inquisition was used with some brutality against the Cathars. So that by 1300, <coughs> Catharism is basically dead a lot of the time by um, former soldiers back from the Crusades. So Catharism flourished in the south of France, the north of Italy, brutally crushed by the church using the full intellectual might of linked to the political power of the newly established Inquisition, backed up by the muscle of um, bloodthirsty Christians. So you'll find, I think if you, I, I didn't do this yesterday, I'm sure if you go to the internet and type in the word Cathar, it will take you to all kinds of New Age sites because uh, some sort of popularity among New Age sites. Malcolm Lambert, who uh, wrote the book on medieval heresy, actually lives next door to my mum and dad, that's how I got to know him. These um, reincarnation stories are very, very interesting, but there has to be some kind of way. <clears throat> Second group to look at, the Waldenses. You will not find in Protestant historiography um, any attempts to link Protestantism with Catharism that I'm aware of because it's self-evidently heretical. A question about it means pure. It's from the Greek catharsis. Yeah. You know the, the family of Greek words uh, surrounding catharsis. It means the pure ones. <coughs> so the Cathari are the pure ones. The Waldenses. These are much more promising grounds for the Protestants, generally speaking. Founded by a rather um, mysterious character called. Valdesius, also known as the Vaudois. Valdesius, who in later writings is referred to as Peter Waldo, but that is a later tradition. We don't know that Valdesius, his name was Peter Waldo. Tradition has it that he was converted while hearing a street preacher telling the story of St. Alexis, who was a wealthy man about to marry a beautiful wealthy woman, heard the gospel, gave it all up and went off and became an ascetic monk. Valdesius was a wealthy man, married at the time. Um, having heard this and having been struck by the story, decides that he too will become a kind of wandering mendicant, a poor preacher, wandering the countryside, preaching the gospel. Sets up an endowment for his wife and heads off to head up a movement really of sort of poor preachers. He does this with relative tolerance from the church, who allow him, if you like, to preach on probation. Institutional churches always seem to be fairly pragmatic. Um, providing you're successful and not rocking the boat, you're pretty much allowed to get away with what you want to get away with. Certainly been the case in Britain in the last few years. 1180, he submits a document professing his orthodoxy to the church. And it would seem that the Waldensians are basically orthodox in their theology. However, in 1184, Pope Lucius III, in a bull ad and you'll know that papal bulls take their names from the first couple of words in the Latin 
competition, the last papal uh, bull to come out, I think it was Veritatis Splendor, so seven or eight years ago now. The Splendor of Truth takes its name from the opening sentence of the bull, Ab Abolenda, which is directed against the poor of Lyon. Alesius is from Lyon. The poor of Lyon, these are the followers of Valdesius. Um, they are banned from preaching and condemned by this. Why does the Pope do this? It would seem, I think, what is happening, the Pope doesn't have really have any problem with Valdesius's theology. The problem, I think, is that Valdesius is essentially a self-appointed layman. But what you have here is a lay movement gaining power, which has not developed through the usual channels of the church, is not linked to the hierarchy of the church in the way it should be. It's the clash, if you like, of established clergy versus can-do lay people. To that extent, it parallels things that have happened in Protestantism at different points in Protestant history. Clashes between field preachers and established presbyteries or established bishops. The real problem, I think, with the Valdensians is the implications that the movement has for the hierarchical power of the church. It's not a doctrinal thing so much as you can't have self-appointed lay people going around preaching the gospel. You get a very similar view in sort of high church Presbyterianism. I'm quite sure it's entirely biblical. I'm quite sure. I know you can get an awful lot out of the Jerusalem Council at Acts if you really try hard, but I'm not sure that some of the radical statements about preaching are necessarily there. So, well though then, Valdesius, I think, clashes with the authorities because he's an empowered layman. It's a little bit like what I was saying last week about martyrs. The worst thing that happens to the church is martyrs who survive. The church finds it very difficult to cope with alternative authority structures developing within the church that it's not in control of. And I think the papal bull is a way of the Pope imposing his control on this particular uh, group and individual. It's a classic clash, if you like, between a charismatic individual and the movement he's inspired and the official church hierarchy. <coughs> Much of Waldo's life appears to have been <coughs> devoted to attacking the Cathari. The church would have regarded him as being very much on the side of the angels in terms of his agenda. There to attack Catharist dualism. So he was a good chap in many ways. Valdensianism persists until the time of the Reformation, places like North Italy, where it then really pretty much, except in areas, I think the area controlled by the Duke of Savoy, Valdensianism continued. But in general, Valdensian communities appear to be swallowed up in the larger movement that is the Reformation. And there's always a debate among Reformation scholars as to what extent movements like Waldensianism and Lollardy in England prepare the way for the Reformation. They simply get absorbed by the Reformation as a similar but unrelated movement when it comes along. But Waldensianism ceases to be a major force at the time of the Reformation. But when you're looking at the Protestant historiography of the Middle Ages, you will find quite often, Fox's Book of Mars is a good example, that the true faithful church is seen one level in the Valdensians, partly because they're so orthodox in their basic Christian doctrine. So the Valdensians are extremely useful to Protestants. 
Third example I want to look at today in more detail is that of Wycliffe, John Wycliffe. Just give you the details of his life and then we'll take a break and we'll, we'll recon. Wycliffe, don't know quite when he was born, but he died in 1384. Uh, Yorkshire, come from Yorkshire. He rose in his time to be master of Balliol College at Oxford. To this day remains one of the most prestigious academic positions that anyone can hold. Um, he spent much of his life in the service of a man called John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt was the Duke of Lancaster. Those of you who know anything about medieval uh, English history will know that uh, the crown in England was essentially carved up over a period of 150, 200 years. The crown of England was essentially passed between the houses of Lancaster and York. They were the two powerful baronial factions in late medieval England. They were the so-called, if you like, the kingmakers. Could not be king without the powerful backing of one faction. So John of Gaunt, <coughs> Duke of Lancaster, one of the most powerful people. Wycliffe, like Luther after him, only survives because he has the powerful backing of, if Wycliffe had not had powerful political patronage, he would certainly have died a martyr's death. You have two things going for him. One, he lived on an island, so it's difficult to get hold of him. Secondly, he had the island. Wycliffe was one of the great minds of the late Middle Ages, schooled in scholastic thought, scholastic philosophy, um, thoroughly grounded in Thomism and Scotism. He is also a man who develops both the philosophy and the theology of the Middle Ages in a way that in some senses anticipates the Reformation, but also strikes profound blows against the institutional church as well. He's the man that lies behind Huss, and Huss, of course, is the inspiration for some interesting wars in Bohemia that serve to weaken the church. And Huss is the man, of course, that Luther is tricked into saying that, you know, into saying that he feels a lot of what Huss has said is good. Huss is condemned as a heretic. But we'll come on to that in the second half of the class. We'll take a break now for 10 minutes and then reconvene. John Wycliffe, then. Often referred to as the morning star of the Reformation because he's seen as, uh, in, in the Protestant quest for precursors of Protestantism, Wycliffe is one of the more promising figures that the later Middle Ages throws up. He emerges very much from a culture uh, which had seen a revived Augustinianism. Um, a guy like Thomas Bradwardine, written a major work, The Cause of God Against the Pelagians, 1344. Bradwardine shaped the Oxford in which um, Wycliffe was himself schooled. So you have uh, in Wycliffe a man who's not only trained in late medieval scholastic philosophy, Thomism, Scotism, but is also partaking of this revival of Augustinianism. Now we look back in the 13th century and we see that Augustinianism, good, faithful Augustinianism, remains alive and well in the hands of a man like Thomas Aquinas. By the time we come to the 14th century, there are guys such as William Ockham pushing things in directions that look distinctly Pelagian. Their understanding of the relationship between God and the future makes them look remarkably Pelagian. Bradwardine represents a different school, and it's this school that Wycliffe taps into. He is also uh, an epistemological realist. Much of the debate in the Middle Ages goes on in university halls 
revolves around the debate between realists and nominalists. <coughs> it's a debate that is not necessarily massively theologically significant, but occasionally it is, and in the case of Wycliffe, it is theologically significant. Realism and nominalism. <coughs> realists effectively argue for, and I, I hate to use this sort of pompous language, but unfortunately, there's very little choice in this case, the ontological priority of universals or ideals. You have a dog. What makes your dog a dog? Your dog is a dog because he participates or she participates in the universal idea of dogginess that existed prior to and independent of your dog. If your dog was the last dog on earth, and tragically there was no way that he or she could reproduce themselves, and she was dying of an illness, when your dog dies, dogginess would still exist out there somewhere in the stratosphere. There would still be an idea of dogginess, an ontological thing of dogginess out there, totally independent of the existence of individual dogs here and now on earth. If you were a nominalist, you would regard dogginess as entirely dependent upon the existence of individual dogs. The idea of dogginess is something that you construct from looking at different dogs and abstracting intellectually what they all hold in common and saying that there is this ideal of dogginess, but it doesn't have any independent existence outside of the individual dogs that exist. Your beloved pet dies, it's the last dog on earth, and dogginess dies with it. Tragic. Tragic. <laughs> That's the way it is. So, much of the debate then in the Middle Ages is tied up with do universals, ideas such as dogginess, do they have a real existence or merely a nominal existence? Are we simply talking about a word when we refer to dogginess, or are we talking about a real ideal thing that exists out there? And Wycliffe comes down very much on the realist side of this. Wycliffe, however, pushes realism in a way that does have theological significance. <clears throat> Wycliffe doesn't just see realist things as referring to actual instantiations of things. It's not just dogginess that is real. Wycliffe also sees relations as having this reality as well. The cat sat on the mat. Sitting on a mat. <laughs> the mat has participated in a universal real mattiness. The cat participates in a universal real cattiness. But, pardon the sort of grim rhyme, the sat also participates in a real sattiness out there. <laughs> now, this has theological, you know, we laugh at this, but this has theological implications. It means that every relation that exists, exists, has a prior ontological and logical existence in the mind of God. And that, of course, has profound implications for predestination. <coughs> there is such a thing, there is such a relation as being in a state of justification towards that is a relation, being in a state of justification towards. That relation exists prior in the mind of God. And not only does that relation exist in the mind of God, 
but every specific permutation of that relationship that exists here on earth exists prior in the mind of God. So, A, being in a relation of state, uh, a state of justification towards God exists prior in the mind of God. B, being in a state of justification towards God exists prior in the mind of God and that is the basis for it existing in reality. C, existing in a state of justification towards God exists previously in the mind of God and that is the basis for it existing really here on earth. What do we call that? So Wycliffe takes hold of you know, uh, what appears to be a fairly abstruse point of medieval epistemology and pushes it to the point where it becomes a philosophical basis and explanation for a radical predestinarian system. Because there is also a relation, A does not exist in a state of justification towards God. B does not exist in a state of justification towards God. And God knows that too. So God has a decree of election and he has a decree of reprobation as well. So Wycliffe is a radical double predestinarian, partly through scriptural exegesis, partly undergirded by his understanding of the medieval philosophical problem of reals, universals and nominals. Justification for Wycliffe is the consequence of human acts, but those human acts only take place because the relations they require and involve exist prior in the mind of God, not just in a general sense, but in the specific sense of Virginia exists in a state of justification towards God. That exists prior in God's mind to Virginia existing in that state here on earth and causes Virginia to exist. So by pushing realism not simply from individual beings but also to relations as well, Wycliffe draws the realist debate into the realms of anti-Pelagian predestination. And these are the kind of questions that have been thrown up at Oxford by Thomas Bradwardine. So Wycliffe is working within that framework. And on that level, Wycliffe is orthodox. Wycliffe is thoroughly orthodox to the extent that, you know, I think I would, one would hesitate to go with him all the way on some of the things he says. But essentially, he's not saying anything that steps outside of the bounds of what is acceptable orthodoxy. Bradwardine's not excommunicated. Wycliffe is within the bounds of acceptable orthodoxy. It's what Wycliffe does with this doctrine that makes him so dangerous to the church. And that is, he brings his doctrine of the church into relation to his doctrine of predestination. Instead of defining the church as, in essence, the Pope and the College of Cardinals, and the institution, if you like, that devolves from that entity, Wycliffe defines the church as the totality of the predestined. Past, present, future. If you like, he defines the church radically in terms of its invisibility. Who knows who's elect and who isn't? Wycliffe's good medieval. I mean, he's very different from the reformers on this perspective. Nobody, nobody can know that they're elect unless they happen to be a super saint to whom God has directly revealed so the church is the totality of the predestined. It is not the Pope. It is not the College of Cardinals. How does he push this? Of course, he pushes this in a radical way. If the church is the totality of the predestined, and none of the predestined, with the odd exception, know that they're the predestined, no human being can claim to be the head of the church. This is where, if you like, the rubber hits the road. 
Wycliffe does is he moves from the realist debate to the predestinarian debate and he now applies predestination to his doctrine of the church as a critical cutting tool that cuts straight through papal authority. If nobody can claim to be head of the church on earth, then the Pope cannot claim to be head of the church on earth. And therefore the whole Catholic understanding of the church as devolving from the Pope and the College of Cardinals collapses. This is why Wycliffe, or one of the ways in which Wycliffe is so dangerous to the church, because of a doctrine that effectively destroys the place for the institutional church as their understanding. Is this why he also considered the church? I'm not, I'm not sure. I suspect in that there's always been a case, it comes back to the heresy and geography thing, possibly, that those who are furthest away from you and can't interfere with you always look. <coughs> I'll have to go away and look that up. <clears throat> this is the end of side one. Please flip the tape at this point. So the totality of the predestined then undermines doctrine of the church. Has all kinds of implications, of course, this for the sacraments. If the church is the totality of the predestined, it somewhat weakens the role of the sacraments in being the dispensers of grace. And also church-state relations. This is where Wycliffe, if you like, his masterstroke. Wycliffe argues that the church... Uh, should be effectively dismantled by the secular authorities. He is what we would later describe as an Erastian in terms of his understanding of the relationship between church and state. The church is to be controlled by the state. It is to be dismantled as a political power force by the barons. Wycliffe very much sees the barons as those who can liberate the church from its bondage. Mark? Well, certainly he believed in, uh, I mean, he does still hold, if you like, to sacramental practice, believes in the preaching of the word, um, but the tendency in his thinking, I suppose one has to say but he's reacting very much against a powerful institutionalized church, and maybe the tendencies that he's setting up would be pushed by his followers further than he would have liked them to have done. But certainly Lollardy, as it pans out, becomes a very anti-institutional thing. There are gatherings, but they are sort of informal gatherings of believers rather than a, a very structured, structured thing. So I think there are strong anti-institutional tendencies in his thinking. And he rejects the idea of private property. doesn't like private property because he feels that is a usurpation of God's sovereignty over everything. So <coughs> while on the one hand he plays very much to the barons, there are tendencies in his thinking that point in almost an anarchistic direction. He's a strange figure. Uh, he objects to private property, and yet the people he hates most are the poor preaching friars, who also repudiate private property. So there are, there are some strange contradictions in Wycliffe. Sorry? I'm going to say more about the sacraments in a minute, yeah. yeah. That was my question, because what happens then to the authority? Well, I think um, Luther's... Uh, Wycliffe's, Wycliffe's view, which I think is not dissimilar to the early Luther, or the Luther of, say, the 15, 1520 treaties. He seems to me to be pushing a view that requires a very pragmatic view of the priesthood, that it's convenient for one person to do it, but that person doesn't have any particular sacramental authority. The virtue and power of the sacrament comes from the promise and the word attached to it, not from 
the moral status of the priest particularly, not from the fact that the church has appointed this person to do it. It's the word that is attached to the sacrament that is the crucifixion. Wycliffe is a great advocate of, he doesn't, I mean the so-called Wycliffe translation of the Bible is not by Wycliffe. He sponsors a translation of the Bible from the Vulgate into the vernacular. He's definitely a move towards a more Reformation orientation, if you like, on word rather than sacraments. Sacraments, his attack really here on transubstantiation, there's a two-pronged nature of his attack. First of all, there is the scriptural attack. Wycliffe also partakes of the late medieval tendency to stress uh, the literal meaning of scripture. You might say, well, that might you know, undergird in some ways his, his view of the Mass, but it actually produces a more nuanced view than was current in the Catholic Church at that time. This bread is my body. Wycliffe's view is, if Christ refers to it as bread, then there must be bread there. There has to be a reference for bread, the word bread, to be referring to. So part of his attack on transubstantiation is the fact that the bread must remain because Christ uses languages in a way that requires the bread to remain. This bread is my body. If there ain't no bread there, Christ couldn't have said that. This bread is my body. So there's a scriptural dimension to his attack on transubstantiation. There is also a philosophical attack. Transubstantiation, you remember, involves a change of substance and no change in accidents. The substance of the bread and the substance of the wine change into the body and blood of Christ. Body and blood in the bread, body and blood in the wine. Don't be, don't be put off by the texture and the colour to think that the body's in one and the blood's in the other. Body and blood are both equally. So transubstantiation involves a change of substance but no change in accidents. For Wycliffe, this is epistemologically disastrous. He's read his Aristotle, he knows uh, his Aristotle well, and he says the problem is that you set up a view of the world where accidents are no necessary guide to reality. If you eat it and it tastes like bread, it dissolves like bread. If you drink it and it tastes like wine, it goes into your stomach like wine, and if you drink enough of it, you get drunk as if it was wine. It's bread and wine. Lucas says you, the epistemological price you pay for saying that it isn't bread and wine is disastrous, is that knowledge depends entirely upon accidents and there's no relation to substance. I could be standing here now lecturing to a room that is merely a baggage of accidents. None of you might have any real existence whatsoever, pile of accidental properties. You could all be house bricks, you just happen to be attached. So Wycliffe's point is, if we allow Thomas to make the move and the church to make the move that it's made, we end up with radical scepticism. For Thomas, of course, this is where faith is. It's the fact that the elements appear to contradict that requires us to exhibit faith at the sacrament. For Wycliffe, that's unacceptable in scriptural grounds and philosophical grounds. However, he does, he does allow that the body and blood of Christ are also present as extra to the bread and wine. So that you have got a grasp of some of the reality there. There's a, there's a bit that transcends it. Later scholarship has called this impanation. That the body and blood are put into the bread and put into the wine. 
and the bread and the wine, the substance of the bread and wine remains. And that is referred to by scholars as remanentism. That the bread and the wine remain and the body and blood are kind of injected in. It looks very like Luther's understanding of the Lord's Supper. Those of you who did the Reformation course this year know Luther has this view where bread and the wine remain and the body and blood come and join them. So when you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you're eating bread, you're drinking wine, you're also eating Christ's body and blood and drinking his body. The difference is, I'll take the question in a second, the difference is that Luther works his view out in a profoundly unphilosophical way. For Luther, it's almost the fact that this is philosophically incomprehensible that commends it to him. For Wycliffe, it is a consistent application of what he understands as Aristotle's epistemology that allows him to undermine the mass. And that's an interesting point because you'll often hear in Protestant circles, the mass is an Aristotelian fudge. It's not. It just uses the language of Aristotle to express a doctrine that the church already defined. The most consistent Aristotelian in the 13th, 14th century was probably John Wycliffe, and he used it precisely to reject transubstantiation. Yeah. What, impanation yeah. and remanentism? Yeah. Impanation, literally, I mean, it's from, I don't think it is from a Latin word, but in meaning in, panation meaning breadiness, or something, in the bread. So, what's happening in impanation is the body and blood of Christ are being put into the bread and wine. I thought that's Remanentism is that the body and bl- is that the bread and wine, the substance, remains. <coughs> So this refers, if you like, to the bread and the wine remaining. And this refers to the body and blood arriving. I'll give you those terms because they get thrown up in the, in the literature a little bit. So Wycliffe has a very sophisticated attack on um, the mass. And it's ultimately this that gets him into real trouble. Even John of Gaunt has difficulty backing him on this one. But Wycliffe, amazingly enough, dies peacefully in his bed in 1384. Though, in 1415, he's posthumously condemned. They dig him up, burn him at the stake, and throw him into the River Swift. So they, they dispose of him. <laughs> they, they had long memories in those days, and they were very, very, very unforgiving. Uh, Wycliffe's significance at a popular level, and the fact that he, he inspired a group known as the Lollards. This was a group, they, he sponsored two vernacular translations of the Bible, and the Lollards were a group of poor lay preachers who travelled around preaching from the vernacular scriptures. Scriptures translated from the, the Vulgate Latin rather than the, the Greek text some way away from being available. The Lollards, very controversial lay movement of protest. They were marked essentially by a kind of crude scripturalism, a rejection of the mass, and vigorous attacks upon um, the clergy and the established church. Their own view of the sacraments was much cruder than that of Wycliffe. His is worked at a very sophisticated, hermeneutical and philosophical level. The Lollards tended to be just a crude rejection of the Mass. The reason why the group is controversial is that the whole field of English Reformation studies is divided between those who think that um, Lollardy was a strong movement by the start of the 16th century and provided a sort of popular bedrock for the English Reformation and those who think that Lollardy was really a very localised problem and that the majority of uh, the English were still good Catholics and therefore the English by the authorities um, top down. We'll talk about that a little bit next year in the Reformation. It's very difficult, I'll just say, at this stage to, to establish how um, 
Sorry, I've just seen that I've got a base, another baseball cap put on my desk. <laughs> um, oh, thanks very much. I'm not sure I'm allowed to accept gifts, but uh, I'll make an exception with the baseball cap. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Um, it's very difficult to tell whether when somebody has a go at the mass, are they part of an organized movement of dissent, or are they simply a hooligan who does very, very difficult to tell the extent of Lollard impact. The records we have are quite... Where we know Wycliffe has a significant impact, however, is in Prague. And this is where John Huss... John Huss, sometimes spelled with one S. Dates, 1372 to 1415. The best biography available at the moment is written by a guy called Matthew Spinker. There's a slight historiographical problem with Huss in that he is very much a Czech hero. He was uh, an advocate of bohemian rights at Prague during the early 15th century. And during the, the middle of this century, people like Spinker working in, in the USA, working in exile, but working on Huss, very much saw Huss as the archetypal Czech hero. So. The definitive biography of Huss probably remains to be written some distance from uh, Bohemia, some distance from the struggles that Czechoslovakia, particularly Czech Republic as it now is, endured under uh, Eastern Bloc in the, the middle of the 20th You can't separate the writings of Czech scholars in the middle of the 20th century, their status as either exiles or... So Huss looms large, as Luther did uh, for the Germans, for different, as a national hero, as well as a figure of theological significance. Uh, <clears throat> he, was studied, he studied at Prague. By 1401, he was Dean of the Philosophical Faculty at the University of Prague. And he became a well-known preacher at Bethlehem Chapel. I've never been to Prague. I would love to go. And I believe that you can still go to Bethlehem Chapel and they still have Huss's pulpit where he used to stand and preach. Established himself as a very, very charismatic, with a small C, of course, preacher vigorous opponent of corruption within the church. Huss, like many of the heretic stroke deviants of the later Middle Ages, is really a moral crusader, in many ways, rather than a theological crusader. Those we should say that's not entirely true. Huss also comes at a time when relations between England and Bohemia are warming. Um, Wenceslaus II Sorry, Wenceslas the Fourth. Let me get you confused. Wenceslas the Fourth. Whether he was good King Wenceslas, who last good uh, Wenceslas who looked out, I'm got a clue. But it was him or an ancestor or a descendant, presumably, who did that. Wenceslas's sister married Richard II of England, and this led, as you know, in those days, marriages were always marriages of political convenience. Led to alliances, cultural, political, and otherwise, between England and Bohemia. Richard II um, comes to a rather ghastly end at Pontefract Castle, the hands of the barons, but I won't tell you about that. Um, not as bad as the end of Edward II, who came to an extremely unpleasant end. I think it was Edward I, Edward the II, in Barclay Castle, near where I live. Um, but that really is a, an after-watershed story. Um, <laughs> so Richard II comes to a bad end, but at this point in time, everything's nice. He's married to the sister of the King of Bohemia, and... Uh, this has led to cultural links. One of the things that takes place is books pass between institutions. Wycliffe's writings come to Bohemia and influence a generation of guys, including 
Man of Prague, church leader, and our own John Pass. Inspired in part by um, Wycliffe's writings to further heights of uh, antipathy towards the corruption of the church, Wick, uh, Huss continues his tirades against church corruption. And this leads to his banning in 1407. He's banned by the church. This point, however, the papacy itself is in crisis, split between two rival claimants to the papal throne, Alexander V and Gregory XII. Huss, Wenceslaus, and the Czechs, and this is important because there's a national dimension to this, the Czechs at the University of Prague back Alexander. The Archbishop of Prague, a man called Zbinko, Zbinko of Prague, the Archbishop of Prague, the Poles, the Saxons and the Bavarians, i.e. the Polish and what we would broadly characterise today as the Germans at the University of Prague, they back Gregory XII. It's interesting because there is clearly a dimension in Huss that is anti-German. Huss is not only the leader of the anti-corruption faction at the university, if you like, he is also one of the great opponents of the Germans at the university as well. This makes him enemies in the wider <coughs> Holy Roman Empire. Huss is an anti-German man. Remember we, when we looked at Luther, those who did Reformation course, you know, a large part of Luther is that he's also the head of the, the anti-Italians. He's not just a German reformer, he's also anti-Italian. That's one's to understanding Luther. One of the important things to understanding Huss and his fate is that he doesn't like the Germans and they don't like the real immediate significance of this is that Spinko decides to change sides, decides to back Alexander V. Spinko has hated Huss, Huss hates Spinko, but as a reward for him changing sides, Alexander V allows Spinko to repress him at Prague. And of course, this means that Huss is um, effectively repressed as well, repressed as well. In 1411, new Pope, John XXIII, excommunicates Huss. An excommunication which he reinforces in 1412. This is followed by Huss's major work, 1413, De Ecclesia, on the church. And this is where his Wycliffism really explodes. First ten chapters are more or less lifted directly from John Wycliffe. <coughs> Plagiarism, copyright, intellectual property, these laws didn't really apply in the late Middle Ages. What Huss is doing is perfectly acceptable in the canon. Huss lifts the first ten chapters of his work straight from Wycliffe's work of the same name and argues for precisely the same view of the church as Wycliffe did. Totality of the predestined used as a critical axiom for undermining the institutional nature of the church. There are a couple of crucial ones, a couple of significant differences between Huss and Wycliffe. Huss has got a lot more fun anecdotes about the corruption of the, the Catholic Church. Huss is one of the, the sort of early references we have to Pope Joan. You know this, uh, the legend that one of the popes was actually a woman, <coughs> appointed by accident, pretending to be a man, dressed as a man, got appointed as Pope. Um, the secret was out when she gave birth while sitting on the papal throne. This is the story. Um, it appears to be a Protestant myth. 
you will, I mean, if you go to Jack Chick's page, I'm sure he's got something proven. You know, he's probably got a photocopy of the identity card of Pope Joan or something there. He can probably prove that she actually existed. But the general um, consensus, inspired, no doubt, Jack Chick would tell you, by all kinds of Jesuits working behind the scenes, but the general scholarly consensus is that Pope Joan wasn't a propagandist. And it's quite funny in the way that Huss tells them. So he goes out of his way to really rile the papacy in this work. The other crucial difference, and this is the tragic difference, Huss maintains transubstantiation. Huss maintains transubstantiation. The reason why it's a tragic difference is one of the things for which Huss will be executed is his advocacy of understanding the sacraments. And he never does it. There's a whole list of things for which Huss is condemned. And the majority of them, I think I'm right in saying, he never he attacks the papacy, he develops a very critical doctrine of predestination, which dies for an awful lot of things that he never believed. So he writes this work. My question I've got on my notes here is, was he a heretic or did he just hit them where it hurt? I suspect he was just hitting them where it hurt to a large extent. He became, after writing this book, a cult hero in Prague went to the Council of Constance. <coughs> Council of Constance was the culmination of the conciliar movement within the church, trying to sort out the crisis in the papacy, the setting up of constant popes and anti-popes. Conciliarism was a movement designed to put authority back into the hands of a council to sort the church out and then sort of hand the power back to the papacy. Huss goes to the travel to travel to the Council of Constance, having appealed to a general council over his excommunication. He says, I want to appeal my excommunication to the councils. The papacy is in crisis. Take me to the general council and allow me to appeal my case there. He is issued with a safe conduct to travel to the Council of, Condu uh, council of Constance. When he arrives there, safe conduct is basically disregarded and he's imprisoned. He's put on trial for his life. He's found guilty of Wycliffeite heresy and he is condemned along with John Wycliffe and with a number of other colleagues, including Jerome of Prague. He is burned at the stake on July the 6th, 1415. And he was made to wear a hat with various devils sort of tormenting souls in hell on it while he was burned at the stake. Um, I think in, in, uh, as, in terms of sort of plumbing the depths of uh, corruption, the execution of Huss has to be one of the the major acts of corruption in the later Middle Ages because the man had an imperial safe conduct. He had, if you like, the legal right to safety at um, the council, but political horse trading betrays him into the hands of the church and he's burned at the stake. Reinforces his image as a cult hero and martyr in Prague, a martyr not just for the true theology, but a martyr too for the Prague pro-Bohemian faction at the university. And in 1420, the so-called Four Articles of Prague are put together, which demand a radical program of secularization and dismantling of church's secular power along the lines that Wycliffe laid out, and also argued for eutroquism. One of the Hussite distinctives, you'll know in the later Middle Ages, the church withheld the cup from the laity too dangerous to allow the laity to sort of slobber all over Christ's body and blood and spill him on the floor and this kind of thing. So the laity, with, the, the laity had the cup withheld from them. Eutroquism is the idea that 
both kinds. Communion should be received in both kinds. And 1420 to 1434, you have the so-called Hussite Wars and the Utraquist Wars, where a national war is fought over the Four Articles of Prague, and much of the uh, programme that is advocated is implemented as a result of the military triumph of the Hussite party. And you will know that when Luther is uh, being tried in the Holy Roman Empire a hundred years later, uh, Utrechtists are there. The Hussite faction, if you like, are there. They've, they have managed to establish a safe haven for their theology a hundred years before the Reformation comes along by sheer military might. So Huss then, one of the great... Wycliffe is the is the great sort of political theologian in England. Huss becomes the archetypal martyr. And the legend has it that as Huss is being burned, he makes this declaration that um, today you burn a goose. Because I don't know Czech, but apparently the Czech word for goose is very similar to Huss. Today you burn a goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise to take up the man mantle. Luther has on his coat of arms a swan. And this is seen as a sort of, by many prophecy of the rise of Luther a hundred years ago. Take it or leave it. The gospel, the gospel doesn't depend on it at the end of the day. But it's a nice story. But Huss, I think, one of the, to me, one of the great figures of the later Middle Ages who took such a, a brave stand against financial moral corruption in the church and was ultimately stitched up. He was framed, burned at the stake. One of the great late medieval figures. And I was surprised and disappointed that there wasn't a particular, you know, an article devoted to Huss in this volume. I think that would be one of the chapters that I would like stuck in if ever they did a second edition. Much of him is translated into English. I suggest you go away and, if you're interested, it would certainly be an interesting character for a paper if you're looking for. Can I take any questions on that? We're almost... You said that when Luther was being taken back in... Um, they were very sympathetic to him, yes. Yeah, even though Huss hated German. You have to be Well, by this point in time, the, the issues had changed. Um, but Luther is known as the Saxon Huss. Um, and he makes the mistake at an early stage in the sort of proceedings against him in the church of, you know, Eck throws this idea to me, you're preaching Hussite heresy. And Luther says, well, I've read Huss and I've seen the articles he was condemned for. And, among many of the things that the church condemned at that point, there was some, there was, he said some good things. Huss said some good things. Bad move. The church has already declared this man a heretic. By doing that, Luther basically puts up his hand and says, I'm a heretic. So tact was never Luther's strong point. And Huss is used to trick Luther a hundred years later. But he's not, he's very, you know, he's remarkably Catholic. He leaves some transubstantiation. All of these guys, um, Wycliffe included, hold to an Augustinian understanding of justification, which is essentially justification on the basis of an intrinsic righteousness. Now that righteousness may come about as a result of God's predestination and therefore be all of grace and of God's unilateral action, but it's still based, it is still salvation on the basis of an intrinsic righteousness. And that marks these guys off radically from Luther. Because for Luther, justification is on the basis of an extrinsic righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in Christ, not the righteousness of Christ. It depends, it varies. And the relationship is not so clear-cut often, I think, as to allow us to make that distinct. Um, but heretics are tried. In Britain, 
Heretics are heretics because the church has declared them to be heretics. But the legislation under which they're tried in England is state legislation, de heretico comburendo, passed by Parliament, a parliamentary statute. So I think it's the persecution and execution of heretics is the church really working hand in glove with Chris. I'll, I'll work things about better. I would guess he would see it as independence or some or at worst an institution that should be made independent of the church. But I don't. I've not. I've not actually come across in anything in Wycliffe where he reflects upon that. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what do you think are actually in general more orthodox than the, the Catholic Church was? So the heretics were what we would say good guys. It varies. Um, and often when we talk about Lollardy, I think we can tend to give a movement a <coughs> uniformity and an identity that it possibly didn't have, you know, at grassroots level. And certainly some of the people that emerge from Lollardy are decidedly unthe you know. One could say they're not really heretics, they don't seem to have any theology at all, really. They don't like the Mass, they don't like the Pope, they read the Bible and the vernacular, but trying to actually construct their theology. So I think I would avoid generalisations and say we do it on a case. Lollardy certainly is breeding ground for radical Pelagianism at a later date. So a related question. Today we talked about heretics by the Church. Certainly the Catholic Church would regard them as heretics, yeah. I mean, I'm working, if you like, with... I, when I go to the 14th century, I want to look at what criteria we used in the 14th century to define what, who and what a heretic. When we come to the 16th century, I think the situation, there is no basic unified church anymore, which we can use as a distinction between heretics and... Then would um, we as... Catholic church would regard them as heretics. Protestants would be... Um, I think I would regard them as heterodox. There's quite a bit there that I would disagree with, but I wouldn't regard that as soul-damning. To that extent, we're all heterodox, I suppose, one extent or another. But I'm using heretic really as a historical term dealing with this, rather than say, I'm not a systematician saying these things are heresies, you mustn't believe in them. I'm saying this is how the church dealt with people who deviated from what the church regarded as its acceptable bounds of its position at that time. Yeah.